When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All we have left is Orient. We know that they were from the East, right? You're not taking that away from us, are you? Uh, that's not a great word to use uh, there. So not yet. I didn't write the song, Dan. <laughs> Hey, everybody, I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How goes the combat, Dan? Man, we're out there. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Or maybe when this airs, it's a little bit after the most <laughs> wonderful time of the year. We're well, it, it depends on uh, your proclivities. If you're a Western Christian or an Eastern Christian, sometimes uh, you know. Oh, that's some of those true. People like to hold things off for a little bit, but that's true. There's a there. There are dating questions uh, at play, but that's not what this what today's <laughs> episode is about. We'll probably have to get to that at some point. Yeah, at some point they're, they're uh, busting down the door about that. But today we got a we we've got a fun guest, Dan. Do you yeah. want to do you want to tell us who we, who we have, who our mystery person is on the today's show? <laughs> Absolutely. Today we're going to be talking with a friend of mine, Eric Vanden Eichel. He is associate professor of religion and also the Forrest S. Williams teaching chair in the humanities at Ferrum College, just south of Roanoke, Virginia. So, welcome to the show, Eric. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Uh, and what uh, what are we talking about today, Eric? <laughs> is it this book right here, uh, The Magi? It uh, is that beautiful blue book on The Magi. Yeah, yeah this that, is a book. Yeah, Go ahead. It's a book that I published last year on uh, on the, the mysterious visitors in the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know what's so mysterious. I mean, I think we all know the story. <laughs> Obviously, three dudes show up. They follow a star. They go. They visit. Uh, they're wearing crazy clothing, mm-hmm. and uh, they each have a single uh, gift to give, and uh, and then they go home. Uh, yeah. What's what's Bingo hard bongo, about this? You have a savior. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're right. They're right there on the cover, right? They've either, right. You forgot the bit about their crowns, though. I think. Yeah, yeah they're, you know. it's because they're kings. We yeah. know that they are nice kings. Embossed. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's a beautiful <laughs> cover. Yeah. Uh, I. I. So, I think that you know, for a, I mean, this isn't a large part of the Bible. It's in one gospel. It's what? How? How many? It's. I mean, we're not even talking about like four chapters or whatever. What are we talking about here? No, we're talking about like 12 verses um, and yeah, only, only in Matthew and only very briefly. And they um, the story is so short and so um, lacking in detail. Right. And so the sort of, you know, the, the all of the hymns and the iconography and er- everything that kind of develops around these characters, um, when people go back and reread the story, they're often surprised at how little there actually is there. Um, right. Because there's just there's just nothing. There's no there's hardly any detail at all. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, later. But there's an awful lot that has accreted to 
the tradition over the centuries and a lot of what we, when we picture it in our heads, kind of like the way we picture Moses, sometimes it's Whitney Houston and it's the Prince of Egypt that is actually front and center in our imagination and the way we recreate these stories with the Magi or Magi, if you're nasty. Um, this can, There are other traditions that are influencing how we think about that. I'm looking forward to talking about some of these things and particularly some of the apocryphal tales that... Uh, that influence really our understanding yeah. of the story. You know, yeah, you, you you mentioned the different pronunciations. When I was looking, I I sort of looked into this in a very uh, non-academic way a few years ago, and I saw this the word M A G U S used as as sort of like a, a transliteration or something of of the Greek or whatever. And I, so now from for me in the for the rest of my life in my mind i'm going to think of the three magoos i uh, i don't think that's correct but that's that's how i prefer to think of them well the three wise guys is another way that uh, mm-hmm. right. some yeah. people refer yeah. to them um but maybe we should start with that word because uh there's a greek word here and uh there it doesn't seem to be easy to know what that greek word means what are we talking about eric yeah so the the greek word um that Matthew uses is uh, magoi, and this is the plural form of uh, magos, which is what you encountered as the sort of anglicized magus. Um, so magos, though, when we're looking at this word in Greek, um, I mean, the, the easiest way to kind of translate it woodenly would be just to say something like magic or magician or something like that. Um, but, you know, just like um, just like other titles today have these kind of connotations, like, you know, magician today has, has, you know, depending on who you are and how you feel about magic, a magician could be somebody who is, um, you know, a showman and, or, a, a, somebody who's kind of, you know, um, uh, talented at sleight of hand and these sorts of things, or a magician could be, um, someone completely, you know, negative. And so, you know, when we're, when we're talking about kind of understanding what this word means, um, you know, trying to avoid those sorts of loaded, uh, loaded words, I, I think are helpful, but also in the ancient world, right. It's sort of a, um, the same kind of thing goes in the ancient world. There's some people who view, uh, uh, magoi very positively. And then there are some people who view them as, as charlatans. And you see this, um, you see this, you know, in, in, in the new Testament, right. You see in Matthew, there's these magoi who tend to, you know, they, they, they don't seem, evil or nefarious or anything like that. But then you go a couple books later in, uh, in the book of Acts and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of negative characters. So, but anyway, getting back to this question, how do we translate this? Um, there's been a number of different attempts, right? So there's some, um, translations that use, they follow the King James and say wise men, right? And so the emphasizing the wisdom of these characters rather than, um, their, uh, if we could say their their magicalness, uh, perhaps. Uh, but then there's also, um, I believe it's the NIV, if I'm remembering correctly, that's, that calls them astrologers, um, which is probably a, a bit of a stretch, um, calls them that because of their interest in the star. I but mean, no, trans- they, yeah. we know that they're interested in at least one star. <laughs> right. And that's the that's the thing. But the really funny thing is that in the in, in other ancient literature that you survey and you look at Magoi in this ancient literature, one of the things that they just aren't often associated with is astronomy. Like they're not really all that interested. I mean, they they are, but that's not primarily what Magoi in ancient literature do. You know, they are um 
I mean, and they do a lot of different things. They're sort of religious figures, they're advisory figures. So there's the wisdom. There's also the kind of like priestly function. So yeah, how do you translate it? I took the easy route in this book and I just said, let's not, let's just, let's just <laughs> keep them as Magoy yeah. <laughs> and let's just say that word's complicated and we're going to, and we're going to embrace we're gonna the strangeness. Punt. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the that's a little translator tip. Like this word is untranslatable. Yeah, um, that's the kind of tr- is. You know. Yeah. And that's uh, that's something you find a lot in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's like, why are they transliterating stuff all over the place? They're punting an awful lot. Right. So, well, and, um, and and to some extent, because it's such a short part of the of this book, there's no hints to really help you to to get you any further than than where you just said you are you know what i mean there's not there's nothing about these guys we don't know anything about these guys no i mean all we know is i mean what matthew tells us is that uh, there's more than one, right? He uses the plural. So we know there's more than one. He never says three, he just says three gifts. Um, does he imagine three? Yes, probably. It uh, doesn't <laughs> matter though. But you know, where do they come from? They come from this kind of like big area, the East, right? Which mm-hmm. is not terribly helpful. And, um, and then they tell, uh, they tell the people in Jerusalem, they say, we're, we're looking for the one born King of the Judeans and we're, we, we want to, we want to come and bow before him. That's it though. We don't really, yeah, we don't have any clues from Matthew, of of who he's imagining these specific visitors uh, to be. Yeah. Now, in, in the Hebrew Bible, we've got a lot of references to things that are going on in the East, and they're generally pretty negative things. It's kind of a generic reference to those weirdos over there, uh, probably has to do with um, Persian things that are going on. In the the late first century CE, when when Matthew is being composed, is how much is the the scriptural heritage playing a role in what we think Matthew is getting at? Are we trying to evoke that imagery, those those mm-hmm. concepts of these mysterious people in the East who uh, who uh, you know read the stars and and cut open sheep and feel their livers, um, or <laughs> or is there or is it an, indep- an independent kind of uh, set of um, of motifs that that Matthew is appealing to here? Do you have a thought on that? Oh, I have lots of thoughts on that. Oh, um, excellent. You know, <laughs> why don't you talk for the rest of the show then? So. Right. Um, no, I think, I mean, obviously I think Matthew is, is probably aware of this heritage and this kind of baggage that that location um, has, but I don't, um, I, I mean, I think there's sort of a maybe yes, maybe no. So um, if there's, there certainly has been in the past interpretations of Matthew, and these are very early interpretations that 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 say that when Matthew has these Magoi visiting Jerusalem and Bethlehem, that they are the sort of like they might be leaving that wicked and strange and mysterious mysterious place to sort of come to Jesus. So you know the, the kind of early impulse to kind of emphasize the conversion of the Magoi, right? Like they are enslaved to these demonic forces in the East and they're coming to, you know, to be, to to be liberated by Jesus or, Hmm. or whatever. Um, So that's one interpretation. And so if, if, if that is the interpretation you have, which is actually not the interpretation I have, but if it is the interpretation that you have, then I suppose, yes, Matthew is sort of participating in that, you know, the East is the, is the sort of negative, you know, um, location. 
My my read of Matthew, though, is that he is more kind of using the East as, I mean, still a strange and mysterious place, but almost like in an alluring and sort of titillating way. Like it's the kind of um, fascination. Yeah, like the fascination with the with the East and the kind of place where all of these, you know, ancient ancient religious practices are and the you know, they they are. um, So I think more kind of tapping into uh, the East as a source of kind of, um, yeah, mystery, intrigue power even. And these are the people who are sort of coming from the East to, um, yeah, to, to pay homage to the new King. So I think, I think Matthew is tapping into it. Yes. As a mysterious place, but as a mysterious place, ultimately in a good way. Do you think, uh, for those of us who don't, uh, who don't have a lot of background in this contemporaneously to the author of Matthew, how would people have registered this is our, when we say the East, are we going to Iran, that area, to that Persia? I mean, is, is this Zoroastrianism or what, what, like who are these people to the contemporaries of the time? Do we have a yeah. sense of that? Yeah, I think. I mean, I I, I imagine this uh, probably the majority uh, of readers in this time period imagining this probably as sort of Persia that that kind of area. Um, but then also, there's plenty of interpreters who take the East to mean even a land beyond Persia, the sort of you know mythical ends of the world or or things like this. But yeah, I mm-hmm. think I think um, just in terms of geographically, you know, East East indicating indicating Persia. Yeah, we're not talking about India or China. Or- <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, yeah, and and I think I think part of the the key to this is that in a lot of Greco-Roman literature, Magoi are um, a cast of priests um, in in Persia. Okay. And this and this cast of priests, we know from a lot of literature and a lot of uh, curricula and things that we've found that they went through extensive training to be. Yes, filled in on the ways that the physical world manifests uh, the the will and and things of of the gods. Uh, I remember as an undergraduate reading all these things. If you see this unfavorable, this that and the other favorable, this unfavorable. It's just lists of things followed by favorable or unfavorable. But um, I've always I've always thought of this this juxtaposition of the um, the Magoi and Herod. Who's like, huh? What? What's going on? Um, as kind of saying, this is so written into the very fabric of our existence that foreigners can read it. It's legible to them, and they come and say, "We've seen the star. the The King of the Jews is here." And Herod's like, "Oh, I, I miss this." And um, I, I see it as kind of contrasting how the foreigners are better informed about this kind of thing than our own king. Uh, and is there? Is there any sense that um, that what's going on here is we're trying to portray Jesus's birth as just something that anybody paying attention could not fail to uh, to miss? That this is something written in the very fabric of the universe. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, the the, the whole the, the the Magoi are are clued in, and Herod isn't that that becomes a very problematic dynamic in later interpretations of the story but um you know i don't know if it's the case uh that i i don't i don't know if what matthew is saying is that this is so sort of self-evident that anyone's paying attention will actually see it because 
he has he doesn't have people coming from the east. He has Magoi coming from the east. Yeah. And as you said, these are highly trained religious professionals, probably. Or at least that's the connotation that they that they have in the ancient world. And so um, so really the whole point is um, it, it isn't the case that anyone can tell what's going on here. It's the case that these people, for whatever reason, can. And they're the ones who are paying attention to such things. Now, why okay. they're paying attention to those things, um, who, who knows? You know, what what in the world is this, the whole star? Is it a, is you know, what is the star, right? Is it, is it some kind of unusually bright um, thing that really, really stands out? Well, I mean, the point of the story seems to be that it isn't right. It's something that they can see the significance in, but not everyone can. Yeah. It does seem like they are a privy to information that other people don't seem to have. And B they find, it seems to be more, I don't know. The, my, in my reading, it seems to be more a point of interest for them than it is. Any, because uh, as soon as they come and, and drop off their gifts, they're uh, they're out. They they leave. They don't join up. They don't. You know what I mean? They're they're not. Right. They don't stick around. They they overtly go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They and they they leave as quickly as they get there. Right. They go to the wrong place first. Right. Because they they see the star says the the star tells them or they interpret it as um, the, the 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 king of the Judeans has just been born. And so they go to Jerusalem because that's the obvious place yeah. where you would find the king of the Judeans. It's like saying, um, well, it's not the same. I was going to say something about the president or whatever. But but if you if, if some if some, um, you know, uh, if if you walked outside and saw some star and the star told you like go and go and find the president of the United States the most obvious place to go would be Washington DC right if i you know went to richmond like that that doesn't make any sense um <laughs> and so they so yeah they they sort of are um uh yeah they they kind of go to the, the to that wrong place um but then the star sort of appears and then leads them to the right place and to Bethlehem. But yeah, they get there, they give their gifts and then they, I mean, the only other detail in terms of how long they were there is that apparently they were there long enough to go to sleep because they had a dream. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And and then they were like, well, we need to go back by another way, but they, yeah, they don't like, they don't camp out and get an apartment. Like they just, they do what they came to do, which they, they came to give their gifts and pay tribute to the King. And then they leave, they go home. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. 
I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. So two questions about them showing up. Uh, one, a lot of folks tend to think that the, it got kind of crowded around the, <clears throat> the manger on the night when Jesus was born, but this is something that's happening a little bit later. And to what degree do you think they're kind of functioning as a bit of, Mag- of a MacGuffin to kind of uh, inform Herod that his challenger has been born so that he can go and do what what Herod's got to do to um, mm. kind of um, uh, fulfill his his role uh, in this uh, in this whole narrative are those fair so, questions <laughs> yeah so that's a, so that's a question of so let me let me make sure I'm understanding your question so the question being sort of are these guys, um, are these guys sort of there to facilitate Herod's tyrannical, like, you know, because Matthew's obviously trying to tell G- the story of Jesus's birth through kind of alluding to the story of Moses's birth, mm-hmm. like the slaughter of the innocents and all of this kind of stuff. Right. Um, I think it's intriguing to kind of consider that possibility that that's what they are doing here. But I also think that the story and the connotations that 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 word Magoi uh, carries with it makes it it makes it a little bit I, I guess I guess my response would be if that's Matthew's goal is that they are sort of um, they are sort of facilitating this thing that Herod's doing then Matthew has overtold the story if that makes sense yeah it's almost yeah. like if you had said um, I, I had a student one time who who made the suggestion um, when I was asking them so we were talking about the flood and uh, the, the flood stories in Genesis. Yeah, it's like, well, so what's the point of this story, right? Like what, why, why does this story exist? What's the meaning? And they said they were, and they were trying to bring in vocabulary from earlier in the class. And so they, they said, is the flood story an etiology for the rainbow? And I was like, <laughs> well, <laughs> and, 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 and lest anyone think that I'm student shaming here, I'm absolutely not. It's a brilliant suggestion, right? Is it an etiology for the rainbow? Does it tell us where the rainbow comes from? And I sort of paused for a second. I thought, well, Maybe, but that's an awfully violent and complicated story to explain yeah. <laughs> right the rainbow yeah. and yeah. so and so i would I would think that like you know the, they they tend to fit in with that with with the story of Herod being 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 Herod right being the sort of um that that tyrant. Um, but if that's their only function or even their primary function, I think that, that Matthew has oversold and overtold that story. Okay. And then, um, do we have an idea about the time after Jesus's birth that they show up? How many days, months, years are we talking about? Yeah. So I think that question, um, that's a question that I think comes from attempts to read Matthew and Luke together. Right. Because the because part of the part of the kind of harmonizing impulse of reading Matthew and Luke together, these very different birth stories is 
Luke tells about the story of Jesus's birth, and then Matthew sort of imagines the mag the magoi being there a couple of years later because of the reference to the two years old and 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 whatever. And I think that's um, I think that's certainly possible that Matthew is imagining um, these visitors as coming to see Jesus after he's been like alive for a while. Um, but also I just don't really think he gives us enough clues. I just think he's sort of imagining them as kind of, yeah, just sort of showing up. Uh, and so later stories kind of try to try to try to answer this question, right? Like how, how much later did they come? And so some will say, well, you know, the star appeared when Jesus was born and then they set out and they, you know, took a couple months or whatever to get there. And then others say like the star appeared, you know, a year in advance or, or whatever, so that they arrived right when the birth was, uh, had just happened. But yeah, it's a question. The timeline is a question that, that doesn't really seem to have a firm answer in Matthew. Remind me which of the gospels the drummer boy is in. Is that that's Luke, right? I'm not I'm trying I'm just trying to piece it all together. Oh, yeah. That's the gospel of Bing Crosby and uh, um. <laughs> it's Parumpapum Pum chapter 2. Uh, such a strange, such a strange, the, the drummer boy has always stuck out to me as like, really, that's the, you know, like, it's kind yeah, of an Well, annoying, I mean, yeah. as we all know, when, when someone's just given birth, the thing that they really want is a drum solo. Yeah, I think that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's the thing we're all hoping for in those, in those quiet yes. moments in a yes. manger. Yes. What every woman wants. Um, <laughs> speak, but speaking of sort of, you know. When we when we think about all of these stories, we do mesh them together. We mesh together, you know. We like every every grandma has a you know a crash, a, a you know a, a nativity scene, and there's Joseph and Mary and Jesus in in the manger, and and then you know there's all of these other characters. There's there's angels and shepherds and various critters, and then there's these three dudes mm-hmm. um how much do, like maybe you can talk to us because now we do we have you know dan you alluded to it before we've got like names for these guys we've got uh a, you know a whole bunch of different backstories and whatever where where does all of that come from because i read those 12 verses in matthew and uh Balthazar or whatever doesn't come up or or whatever the names are. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing you read them and you go, huh, that's it. Wow. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that is a uh, it's, I mean, it's a product of how we read and it's a product of how we make meaning, right. Is that we, um, we always are reading stories, everything we read, we're always reading in light of other things that we've read. And then also our brains are filling in the gaps when we have uh, when we have stories that that don't have that detail. Right. And so one of the greatest examples of this is um, is if you just read the story of Jesus's birth in the Gospel of Luke and um, in the Gospel of Luke, there is no stable. Right. But this is this is a detail that readers minds have filled in now. And and if people are watching this right now, go to the Gospel of Luke and find the stable. You won't be able to find it. There's also no innkeeper in the Gospel of Luke. Um, you know, that's that's the the the, the Christmas pageant. Right. The who's who's going to play the, uh, the 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 sorry or the evil innkeeper like, well, that role doesn't appear in Luke. There's simply no room for them in the 
the Cataluma, which is whoever knows what that means. But anyway, um, so we sort of we we mesh things together and we fill in gaps and um, and that's just kind of how how the how the whole reading and and meaning making process uh, uh, works. And so in Luke, where does the stable come from? Well, there's a manger. And so manger is a feeding trough for animals. So where might you find a manger? Well, maybe in a stable, but also maybe in an alleyway, maybe in a cave uh, and all of these different um, kinds of places. And so when you're reading Matthew and all of the things that we've been talking about, right? Like how many people are there? Where are they actually from? What are their names? What do they want with Jesus? Um, Those are all questions that earliest readers have. And then they start to kind of fill in those gaps. And, you know, it's like if you're telling a a bedtime story to your kid and then there was Magi who came from the East, what were their names? Oh, you know, (laughs) and then they sort of, those details kind of creep into the, into the story as it's told and retold. You brought up, uh, you brought up a cave, uh, Dan, you talked about meshing these things together. This is stuff that's already going on in the second century. We have Tatian's Diatessaron, which is yep. a harmonization of all of the Gospels, which is meshing these things together. Uh, we have an interesting text that seems to be the root of a lot of its traditions uh, associated with uh, the uh, pre-birth and birth of Jesus, the Protoevangelium of James, correct? Yes. That um, this is where we get the picture of Mary riding down to Bethlehem on a donkey. This is where we get the idea that they found them in a cave. Uh, right. This is where we... What other ideas do we get from... You're telling me the donkey isn't even real? The donkey's not real. They did What's not have happening? donkeys in that time period. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd be lied to. It's in the Pixar movie, though. No, the uh, the the, the Protoevangelium, uh, which is a, another text that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, the Protoevangelium does seem to be one of. I mean, along with the Diatessaron, it sort of seems to be one of the kind of crucibles where these gospels traditions are starting to um are starting to kind of combine and so you know in uh and and the the ways that they're combining is really fascinating so like in luke you have this sort of jesus born wherever he's born right on the streets somewhere or in a stable or in a cave or whatever the whole point being he's born not in a house and and then Matthew, the, the the Magoi come to the house that Joseph and Mary live in. So there's kind of two different stories here. Matthew has them living in Bethlehem, and that's why Jesus is born there. Luke has them traveling for the census, and that's why Jesus is born there. In the Protoevangelium, they are traveling um, to register in the census, um, but then they sort of are outside of Bethlehem and then they stop in the cave, which again, like if you go back to Luke, that detail actually doesn't contradict Luke. It just sort of provides a detail that Luke doesn't provide. Mm-hmm. But then the Protoevangelium author harmonizes these things by also having the Magi appear at this cave. Um, and so, you know, the, the yeah, the sort of the sort of quote unquote homeless Jesus um, is a Lucan feature, but then the Magi and the star and all of that stuff, that's a um, that's a Mathean feature. And then they get kind of combined in there in that. Um, and then we turn it up story. to 11 a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's when yeah. the the drummer boy comes that's, up on the donkey. 
<laughs> and I you've think got I'm a- getting it. I think I'm getting it. I, I'm working on it. We're so close. We're so close. Yeah. You've got uh, you've got a great chapter in here where you talk about four different apocryphal texts that feature the Magi that uh, contribute to the, some of the different ways we think about them today. The Protoevangelium of James is one of them. We've also got the Gospel of Pseudo Matthew, the Armenian Gospel of the Infancy, and the Revelation of the Magi. What are some of the things that these texts? contribute to the accumulation of uh, traditions about the Magi? Yeah. So, um, so with, I mean, starting with the kind of, um, with, well, going back to the Proto-Evangelium, um, starting with that, um, one of the things that I sort of noticed when I was looking at that, um, that story is um, this kind of early fascination with the star, right? So Matthew doesn't really do much with the the star. I mean, it's sort of, it's there. Um, but the Proto-Evangelium, the Magi uh, make reference to the star and they talk about why it was so interesting to them, right? And then one of the, the, the thing that they say is um, that it was so bright that all of the other stars in the heavens were dimmed because of its brightness, right? Which is a new detail, right? We don't get that in Matthew. We just get that they saw something of significance in the star. And a and detail so, that yeah. might be problematic in that, like, folks might have noticed that one. <laughs> Right. Well, and, and that's the thing is that the the um, uh, so the star sort of in later traditions kind of get, it it it, um, it gains the ability to sort of um, appear and reappear, appear and disappear, and this kind of has this is in Matthew as well, where the star reappears and leads them to Bethlehem from Jerusalem, um, but. Uh, but but in these later texts, yeah, it becomes uh, it becomes almost UFO esque in a way that's like anyone who's paying attention would be able to see this, right? Like <laughs> if there is a star in the sky that is so bright that it is dimming all of the other stars, then certainly that's something that people are going to notice. Um, but but you know the the, the author of the Proto Evangelium takes that detail. And changes a couple of other little details, but that's the detail that he really takes and says, "All right, we're going to really, um, you know, turn this up to eleven, right? We're going to mm-hmm. we're going to crank we're going to crank the brightness up on this thing to sort of um, answer one of those questions that Matthew doesn't really seem interested in answering. To say, well, what did they find unique about the star? And the author of the Proto Evangelium says, well, it was how bright it was, right? And so, um, so that that kind of that kind of detail gets emphasized there." In a text like the Armenian Gospel of the Infancy, which is another just fascinating text that I recommend anyone read because it's just it's really, really interesting. Um, but in the Magi material there, there's this other question that it, that they're that the author is is um, interested in answering, which is why when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem in Matthew, it says Herod and all the people in Jerusalem were terrified when the Magi showed up. It's, and it's weird, right? You look at this and you go, <laughs> OK, like. <laughs> But why? Right. Like, why are they why are they terrified? Um, And in the Armenian gospel, the infancy, the answer is, well, they are uh, they are their kings in this in this text and they're and they're military leaders and they're traveling with with thousands and thousands of troops. And when they arrive at Jerusalem, they camp out around the city. And so the Armenian gospel, the infancy, the people are terrified because they look out and they see that they're under siege. Like literally there's, there's, there's these huge armies that are, that are, that are laying siege to them. And so Herod is sending his people out going, go see what they want. Go see if they want to trade, go see, you know, whatever. (laughs) And then the people come out and they say, Hey, we can tell that you're traveling with 
with stuff we smell it you know it's good but um but that's that 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 text is answering that question of like you know well why were they afraid well there was armies with them um and that text is doing other things as well um but all of these texts are kind of filling out those details the revelation of the magi um i think i probably could have written an entire chapter on this text because the revelation of the magi is um i never actually checked this i suspect that it's about as long as Matthew is maybe, oh, maybe wow. not quite as long, but it's a, it's a long text. And um, when is this dated? Oh gosh. Um, knew you were going to ask me that. I think, like, <laughs> I think, I think I would be comfortable just saying like, I six, seventh century. Okay. So still, still fairly early. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's a, obviously there's a whole uh, there's a whole debate on that. There's, um, you know, some who really who really want to push it back and say, oh, there's a Greek original in the second century. But, um, you know, <laughs> every everyone wants the Greek original yeah. uh, from the second century. But anyhow, uh, but the but it's a Syriac text and it is a um, it's a first person account of the Magi. And so they're the ones telling the story and there's like 20 of them too. So they're, they're all like living way out in this mythical land of sheer. And they're like, they're living at the base of the mountain of the cave of mysteries and treasures and all of this. And then the, I mean, was and they're just kinda, yeah, I was going to say yeah. that was in Aladdin. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you Diamond know, it's in the just, rough. <laughs> it's really funny. It does kind of, it, it does sort of, you know, give that, uh, give that impression of like, it's almost like a Disney film, but, um, uh, but yeah, they're, they're like, they're there and they are, um, you know, they like do all this ritual bathing and they are, and they're, and they're waiting for the arrival of this star. Like they know what they're waiting for. And then, um, and then in part of the thing that star kind of descends and then it goes into the cave and then they follow it in. And in this text, the star actually becomes a character. The star is Jesus himself. And so oh, the wow. star, yeah, it's really, really fascinating. The star says to the Magi, like, follow me, follow me to Bethlehem where I'm going to be <laughs> born, where I'm soon going to be born. And then they leave the cave and, uh, and that's where they get the gifts, by the way, it's very convenient, the cave of treasures, so uh-huh. they bring the treasures from the cave. Um, but then like they leave the cave and, and, and it turns out they all saw something different. So there's one, one of them's like, oh, I saw an infant. Oh, I saw a young child. I saw a teacher. I saw somebody crucified. And oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's like this shape-shifting, um, the shape-shifting Jesus. But yeah, then, it, then it, it, it leads them on and they follow it and it like levels mountains and it helps them to cross rivers and it like um, multiplies their food um, for them and all oh. of this, all of this stuff. So, um, so it's sort of... Um, yeah, these these later these later stories, these apocryphal stories are almost like um kind of like fan fiction, right? They they take these 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 the story that doesn't have a whole lot of detail mm-hmm. and then they kind of fill it out and they retell it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And that's and that's so common within early Judaism and Christianity with, you know, Melchizedek, not a whole lot going on there, but suddenly mm-hmm. we've got a bunch of literature in Second Temple Judaism and later Enoch gets right. uh, a whole uh you know universe in uh the cin- <laughs> cinematic literary universe dedicated right. to Enoch and it yeah. seems like such a fa- uh, an interesting thing to have this little story become the focus of of so much attention like what it seems like there was a market for kind yeah. of uh, exploring these uh these kind of neglected themes in in uh in parts of the gospels and you mentioned that there are many more apocryphal texts that that expand on this but that you just focused on the four 
uh, in the chapter. Is this mm-hmm. is this just associated with the celebration of Christmas? Is this a year-round fascination that people in the, the first millennium CE had? Um, what's your sense on, on why there was such a market for, uh, for these kinds of stories? Oh my gosh, that's a great question that I don't know if I have a really good answer for. Um, the, I mean, it seems to be, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of get the sense just with the prevalence of these characters in not only, um, not only stories. I mean, I, I can't even remember where I read this, where I read this claim, but there was, uh, I read a claim somewhere that, um, the Magi are like third in terms of the the most depicted characters from the new testament or something like that oh, wow. I I, i'm not even sure if you could measure a claim like that but obviously <laughs> like mary and jesus are like way up at the top but i mean in terms of recognizable characters right i mean these are these are characters that um regardless of whether you were you know brought up hearing this story or brought up celebrating Christmas or whatever. Um, these are characters that, that do have a very, very broad, uh, not, not, not a broad appeal, but a, a broad level of recognition. Um, I mean, so it, my guess is that the, that they were kind of not just, not just characters that you brought out of your Christmas decorations box and set on your mantle um, once a year. But my, my kind of sense is that they did have a more enduring quality to them. And you sort of can see this uh, in a couple of different ways. Um, One of the things I talk about a bit in the book is the catacomb art, right? And so there's Mm -hmm. the Magi, some of the earliest depictions of the Magi are in, uh, in the catacombs in Rome, in the Priscilla catacombs. There's a, there's a a painting of them in this, in this beautiful uh, uh, chapel. And then there's, um, uh, they appear again in a couple of different places. There's another painting out in the hallway where they appear um, on a fresco with Mary. And then there's a um, a marble slab where they appear as well. So this sort of um, they, they have kind of an enduring quality um, that seems to kind of supersede like Christmas, I guess. Mm-hmm. They're not I guess the, I guess that all of that's to say I don't get the sense that they are seasonal characters. I get the sense that in the early Christian imagination, they were very prominent Um in terms of why, I mean, that's the that's the ten million dollar question, right? Is sort of what what about them? Um, well, it's in the subtitle of the book. Why do they still fascinate, right? Yeah. And um, they seem to have caught people's imaginations very early, perhaps because of how loaded that term uh, uh, is, right? The magoiers is a loaded loaded term in in Greek literature. But yeah, for whatever reason, they they latched on. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. 
Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I mean, it does seem like uh, a part of the story or a part of their function is that they are uh, some sort of outside confirmation of the divinity or of the the divine provenance of this birth of, you know what I mean? It seems, it seems like uh, it's a nice touch just from a, just from a storytelling perspective. It is a, this is, this is not just uh, important to one small subset of people, to the Judeans or to whatever. Uh, this is a, this is an, a, a thing of sort of global importance, and this adds that externality of, of, uh, of importance to mm-hmm. the story. Yeah, it's, um, you know, so there's a, yeah, there, there's a sense here with, with the way that the, the way that Magi and other ancient literature are depicted. One of the, um, one of the really interesting things that you see time and again, you see this a lot in Herodotus. Um, you see this a lot though, that they are, that Magi are people who are drawn to, uh, Kings. When, when Magi show up in a story, um, we're talking not in the new Testament, but when the Magi show up in a story, they are there, there's about to be a, some sort of political shakeup. Mm. <laughs> like, it, it, you know, when, when the Magi show up, there's either going to be a new King who is, who is, um, is taking power or somebody's about to lose their job. And that's just kind of this theme that you see kind of over and over and over again. Um, and even one of the made, uh, there, there's, two other in the new Testament, two other mentions of, of Magi in both in acts. And in one of them, um, this Magi named, uh, has two names, Bar Jesus and Elimus. And he is also near the leader kind of figure. So they're sort of drawn to political power. So in my read of this story, um, <clears throat> it's actually less about validating the divinity of Jesus and more about validating, um, Jesus's Royal lineage mm-hmm. and saying, th- you know, the Magi are here to confirm that this is the true king of the Judeans. Herod ain't it, but Jesus is. And that's and, and that's one of the reasons why they show up, they give their gifts, they go. Because that's the, why they're there. Yeah. One of the interesting things, sorry, you just made me think of one of the interesting things that I liked about your book was you, you know, you have a discussion uh fairly early on. Uh when you're when in I think it's in chapter two when you're talking about sort of how you're translating a few of these different words, and you talk about you you've said a couple times today, King of the Judeans. Dan said King of the Jews earlier. Mm. Uh, and uh, Don't there's a question this, there. Man. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to fight. I'm starting to fight. Who yeah, wins? See. You have no idea what a fight you're oh, starting man. here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just so, speaking yeah. colloquially. Um, <laughs> hey man, I'm I'm just I'm just asking questions. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, do you want to do you want to take the first punch or? Um, well, no, I don't. I'm not. I'm not siding with uh, mm. a specific uh, part of this. But yeah, there's long been a discussion about how we are to understand this designation and this and this identity. Is this cultural? Is this religious? Is there even a thing as uh, such as religion at this time? Uh, spoiler alert: No. Um, <laughs> is this is this a geographic designation? Is this an ethnic designation? Like, there's this is something that's been um, uh, it's been debated for a long, long time because it has relevance to when you can begin to start about some or to start talking about something called Judaism. Uh, and there have been some books 
where you know people start off in the very first or in the introduction saying, "Hey, I'm just going to use Judean, or I'm just going to use Judahite, or I'm just going to use uh, Jewish, or something like that." Just um, and here's what I, I'm aware of all this, but I'm just right. <laughs> Because you don't, you know, you can't ever get a first down on this. You've got to punt on this in in one um, yeah. sense or another. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I'm I'm not taking sides. I'm just kind of <laughs> I use what is most colloquial and what is most recognizable to uh, my audience. Yeah. But well, thank and, you, thank you for pointing that out and opening up uh, old wounds. Yeah. Oh no, this is <laughs> and this is and this is one of those debates. It's a huge debate in, in our in our field, and and it can sometimes get get rather, rather messy. And, um, and so, and so I, I do, I, you know, the, the ultimate punt would just say, would just be to say like, I'm just not going to translate it. Right. Like that's, mm. you know, the king of the, the Udioi. Yeah. Um, but, but really, <laughs> like you did I mean, with magic. But, exactly. But you know, you can't do that with everything because right. then, yeah, right. th- then it's just lazy, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but the, um, yeah, I, I I translate it King of the Judeans here. Um, I am not one of those who thinks that it is necessarily always the best translated as Judeans. Um, I think it's very context specific. And so in this particular story, I think that that very well captures the sort of ethno-political um, uh, emphasis that Matthew is putting on the story by incorporating these people. Yeah. You know, they are coming to see the they are they are coming to see the rightfully born king of this particular ethnos yeah and so it judean better captures that captures that better than than jews um but yeah i think i think it just depends on what you're i think it depends on what you're reading and that's one of the challenges of translation is that there is no one-to-one correspondence really ever um it's always there's always a question of context there apart from the people's front of judea who are <laughs> right. splitters um so <laughs> so we're, we're we're talking about how uh, this is emphasizing the the royal dimension of jesus identity and, and mission where do three kings come from because I get something uh, um, in in my world of of responding to a lot of conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. I get a lot of stuff about oh the Orion's belt is called the three kings, and on this day the po- belt points to the rising sun on the twenty fifth, oh. and so then so people just made this thing up. Uh, you you know they just pulled everything out of the uh, astrologer's handbook and said we're going to create this dude named Jesus. And, I mean that's that's how I've always understood it. Well, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go against the consensus view here, but um, so uh, I've I, growing up, like I did not grow up in within a religious family. Uh, we celebrated Christmas as more of a of a secular holiday, and I never heard the wise men referred to as the three kings, but evidently mm. that's very prominent uh, for a lot of folks. Uh, where where do the we get the idea of the three kings? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, that, that sort of, uh, it does develop relatively early. Um, so it's, uh, you know, they, I think one of the ways that it develops is this idea that they are coming from, um, you know, in, in, in Matthew, they seem to be all kind of traveling together from the East or whatever, but then one of the popular ways of retelling the story is that they are, sort of all coming from different places and converging on Bethlehem. So sort of a, and that, that kind of grows into this, you know, the, the, 
the different rulers or different important people or different kings um, from various different places are coming together to kind of pay tribute to the real king. And mm-hmm. so this is, um, and I think part of this, how do they become kings is the the star business in Matthew. Like what is the star doing in Matthew? And one of the things that I talk about in, um, in one of the chapters in the book is this kind of linkage uh, between uh, stars and rulers, which is something that you find in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. And it is something that you find in uh, Roman literature as well, talking about Caesar and the star of Caesar and whatever. And, you know, that that um, star is a sign that that Caesar is after his assassination was uh, was divine or whatever. And then his son sort of uses this as propaganda to say, I am the rightful ruler. And, you know, uh, my my dad is, is God, <laughs> is a God. And so like, I am the son of a God or whatever. And so, um, so stars do have this kind of linkage with, with rulers. And so mm-hmm. stars rise just like Kings rise and stars fall, Kings fall as well. And so with texts like, um, the proto gospel of James, the proto evangelium, um, you sort of have the one star Jesus that is brighter than all the other stars, Kings may perhaps. And so then, um, you know, maybe that's something that works its way into the imagination of like, oh, maybe these characters who are coming to bow before Jesus to humble themselves, um, maybe they were kings, but also just lesser kings. And so my mm-hmm. hunch is that that is that the star is very much one of the ways that people start thinking about them as royal figures. Yeah. And of course, the fact that they show up wearing crowns. Um, <laughs> there you go. You know, you can't really you really can't discount that. I mean, it's it's right there in the pictures. And uh, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, is, is, mm. is there symbolism associated with royalty there, or is um, that something else? Yeah, so that's another great question. Depends on who you ask. If you ask some of the early church uh, uh, interpreters who are reading this story, um, many of them are interpreting the gifts as figurative of uh uh, of parts of Jesus's own identity, right? So the gold symbolizes Jesus's royal status. The frankincense symbolizes Jesus's divine status. Um, and then the, and then the myrrh is um, f- figuring, prefiguring his death or humanity or something along these lines. Um, I don't really find a whole lot of that in Matthew. I don't think for Matthew, that's really the point of the gifts. I think Matthew believes that they are expensive. I think he's trying to think of the fanciest and most costly things that he can. And um, and so this either means that these people are rich, like kings, or that they have sold everything that they have in order to, to, to gain these things. Um, so I think that the gifts are sort of definitely meant as uh, helping to validate Jesus's uh, position as the rightful king of the Judeans, but I think the gifts in Matthew say more about Jesus's kingship than they do about their kingship. Mm, okay, and there's there's also another text, um, and now the reference is, is escaping me, but it's in the book um, where uh, there's a Greco-Roman author who says that the kings in Persia um, can't be kings unless they are first magi. So there's oh, sort of like a like they are pulling the kings out of this pool of uh, of of these figures. So there's also in, in the ancient world outside of Matthew, there's also an association between Magi and, and, and Kings. I, I notice as, as we're talking about the different ways that people are kind of negotiating with this story, it's 
always amplifying. It's always escalating. It's always trying to find additional significance, additional meaning, which is something that I talk a, about a lot on on social media, that people are always looking for new and better ways to make the text meaningful or useful to them. And even if that means adding details and, and expanding the story, that's just kind of a natural part of the life cycle of, of these stories. As they are transmitted, they get expanded upon, they get elaborated on, uh, they get amplified. Uh, and obviously this is no exception. In fact, this seems to be one of the, uh, it's an exception in the other direction. It seems to be something where something that doesn't uh, take center stage for whatever reason has become uh, an awful big deal to uh, a lot of folks around the world. And, uh, and, and you end your book with a discussion about some ways that the, the Magi are, are represented in media today. Um, what are some of the more fascinating manifestations of that that you talk about? Yeah. So, um, well, one of the, one of the kind of, um, uh, the things that sort of persists, uh, and it's an early, it's a, it's a rather early interpretive move that, that became very stubbornly persistent, I suppose. And that is, um, interpreting the significance of the Magi first and foremost as being Gentiles. And that is, I think one of the most really interesting, uh, things that persists in a lot of, uh, more modern, uh, depictions is sort of these, uh, or, and, and a lot of theological interpretations of these is like, this is, these are Gentiles who come to worship Jesus. And then you've got Herod and those, you know, those evil Judeans who just want to kill Jesus. Right. And so this kind of dichotomy develops between the sort of good Gentiles and the bad Jews. And I'm, mm. I'm, Please, if you're if you're listening to this on audio, see the scare quotes, the quote unquote bad Jews. I'm not that's not my position. Um, and so that is that is something that I found in a number of spots in the kind of early tradition. But it's also one of the things that I found in uh, a very surprising place, which is a children's book. So I looked at a uh, at a at an illustrated children's book that was um, put together uh, a couple of years ago. And I, I chose it at random off of Amazon. I just went on and I tried to find <laughs> the most recent wise men book that I could just to say like, let's just, let's just do a random children's book. And I even found that sort of anti-Jewish rhetoric in the children's book of oh, the wow, way, wow. you know, the, 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 the way that the, the Magi are, are depicted, right. And they all come to Jerusalem and then, uh, and they're dressed all nicely or whatever. And Herod is this like fat slob with yellow skin and like, you know, he's, he's just filthy, greasy, all of this. And then, and, and the fascinating thing was like looking at, this text, but as a children's book is an illustrated text. And so the images are as, as important as the words and looking at, you know, when Herod and his, uh, advisors go to consult their archives and which is clearly a reference to the, to the, to the, the Hebrew Bible. And, um, the book talks about the musty smell that they give off the, the that the texts do, because obviously <laughs> the Judeans aren't reading their Bibles. Right, right. right. And then, you know, you look at this image and Herod and his people are like crouched in the darkness, whereas the Magi are waiting out in the courtyard in the full sunlight. And it's just this really, really fascinating, like not fascinating in a good way, but fascinating in this way of the way that we've sort of uh, moved to tell this story and the way that people are learning about this story is very much instilling that kind of anti-Jewish 
that's anti-Jewish rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we've got the good, the good Gentiles and the bad Jews. And um, so I found that in a children's book, which was uh, not something I was expecting to find. I wasn't going and looking through children's books for it. I just picked <laughs> this one up and I looked at it and was like, well, damn. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, and so that's, uh, they, that's, that's sort of a, um, you know, uh, fascinating, but also in a bad way. Um, and uh, the other, the uh, another kind of positive uh um, example though of, is, uh, the, um, you know, one of the books that I examine is, um, lamb, the gospel according to Biff, uh, which is a fantastic, uh, novel. Uh, it's sort of a modern day infancy gospel, uh, in many ways, but, uh, in this novel, Jesus and his best friend Biff, uh, go off East, um, down the Silk Road to find the Magi to ask them, who is Jesus, right? Because Jesus is sort of like, I know I'm different. I know I'm God. I know I'm a Messiah, whatever, but I don't know what that means. And then uh, there's a rabbi who's like, you know, your mom said that these three dudes showed up when you were born. Um, They seem to know something about you. So, you know, why don't you go find them? And so they do, they go off and find them. And there's, you know, uh, there's one of them's a Ethiopian magician, one of them's a Hindu um, renouncer, and then one of them's a Buddhist monk. And um, this book is fascinating because um, the entire thing sort of focuses on um, the question of what were the Magi after when they came to visit Jesus. And one of them is in search of immortality and one of them is in search of enlightenment. Um, so that, that sort of question of like, what were they after? And it's a mm. really, really creative way of addressing that. Yeah, oh, that's wow. fun. And yeah. le- less supersessionism in that one. Yeah. yeah, less. I mean, the book the book is problematic as well. But in terms of the in, ter- in terms of the story of the Magi, um, I, I found less of the anti Judaism uh, in that one. Yeah, which so was what, refreshing. What we're left with, if I can, if I can close us out with a, a another pop culture reference, is that you have completely ruined a song uh, <laughs> to the point where now it's we. An unspecified number of non-kings. <laughs> All we have left is Orient. We know that they were from the East, right? You're not right. taking that away from us, are you? Uh, no. That's not a great word to use uh, there. So, not I didn't write the song, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I mean, one of the things that I do uh, is is ruin things. And so that is uh, that is, this should not be any surprise. But yes, um, we unspecified number of wearied travelers from an unspecified location, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> uh, yes. So yeah, but if I this, mean, yeah. if there's a theme to this show uh, mm-hmm. that we've learned and to, you know, anyone who's followed Dan's TikToks or whatever. It's ruining. This is the, the whole show is about yes. yeah. it, it seems that the pursuit of biblical scholarship is largely about ruining fun things that we thought we knew. Yeah. Uh, ruining or as I prefer, complicating. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. think that's I, the I prefer before. to say I I show up, muddy the waters, and then scurry away. Um, <laughs> that's much like the Magi. Yeah. There you go. There you exactly. Go. Per- exactly. Perfect. If I had to go through graduate school, ain't nobody gets to be happy um, with, <laughs> with all these stories. Amen. So. Yes. Oh, well, uh, Eric, this has been delightful. Uh, where can people find your book? Because I know that they're going to want to dive into it and get uh, and, and, and get a lot more out of this thing. So t- talk Abs- to us about your book. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is uh, called The Magi, uh, Who They Were, How They've Been Remembered, and Why They Still Fascinate. Um, So 
at the risk of sounding very cliche, it's um, wherever you get your books from, uh, you can find this one. So it's it's online pretty much everywhere, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and then also Fortress Press is the publisher, and um, their uh, their website is a great place to, to get it as well. Um, but yeah, I hope you'll pick it up and uh, read it and uh, connect with me if you got questions or comments or insults or anything like that. Oh, I wouldn't invite our <laughs> listeners to connect with me. I don't think that's a good idea at all. No, I... Okay. Definitely don't connect with me. I am, I am inaccessible. I am I am a riddle wrapped in darkness. Um, so, uh, after but a I wise man, uh, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Eric Van Den Eichel, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, friends at home, thank you for joining us too. If you would like to become a patron of the show, help make it go. Gain access to uh, an early and ad-free version of every episode, as well as the potential for uh, patrons-only content. You can go to our our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash data over dogma. If you need to write to us, please feel free to reach out at contact at data over dogmapod.com. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC, copyright 2023, all rights reserved.